Hi everyone and welcome to Data Society's speaker series. Um, if this is your first Data Society event, uh, we are Ireland's first student data society and our goal is to bridge the gap between industry and academia by providing students uh, with opportunities to gain experience uh, outside what they do uh, in their courses and their classes. Um, so maybe to start off, uh, Steve, do you want to Introduce yourself. Sure, yeah. Um, so, hi, Ahmed, uh, Sam, and, and hi, everyone on the, on the stream. Thanks very much for, for joining. Um, so, my name is uh, Steve Flinter, as Ahmed said. I head up, uh, I work in, in uh, MasterGuard Labs based in, in Dublin. Uh, I head up a, a team focused on uh, using artificial intelligence and machine learning technology to try and develop the next range of products and services for, for MasterCard. Um, and, and maybe if I, I could, I'll give you a little bit of background of, of MasterCard um, here in Ireland and, and kind of what we do. Um, so I guess everybody knows MasterCard as the, the kind of the brand of uh, hopefully card you have in your, in your pocket, your debit card or your credit card. Um, but actually MasterCard, you know, has a lot more products and, and services than, than just the, the car products that people are familiar with. And, and part of what we do in labs is all around innovating, uh, kind of thinking through what those next range of products and services will be as we work with, you know, banks, retailers, consumers to try and kind of innovate around the whole area of, of payments. MasterCard in, in Dublin is, um, has been established for a little bit more than 10 years. I've been part of the MasterCard organization in Dublin for about six of, of those. Um, but we actually now have a, have a pretty large presence. We have 500 plus people, mostly in the in the technology space around kind of software engineering plus product development and, and all the ancillary services around that. And it's also the global home of MasterCard Labs. So MasterCard Labs is is headquartered and run globally out of uh, out of Dublin, which is a great um, a great coup for the country. So ho hopefully that's a good intro. But if uh, if you want any more detail, I'm happy to to, to give you that. That's uh, that was great, Steve. I did not know that the headquarters for the world is in Dublin for MasterCard mm -hmm. Lab. Um, Steve, maybe to start off with a bit about uh, education and maybe people who are still considering what to specialize in. Um, a lot of universities are starting to offer a, a bachelor in artificial intelligence, which is something I find hard to believe. I do computer science and I, I just can't see how they can go directly into AI from first year of, of college. Mm -hmm. So maybe, do you wanna expand on, do you think that these courses are just more for branding or is it, can you actually now, maybe with uh, secondary schools introducing computer science fundamentals, um, maybe you can actually have a bachelor in artificial, in in artificial intelligence? Okay, straight in with a controversial stuff here, getting me to uh, <laughs> to have a pop at the, the education sector. Um, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the specifics of how those courses are constructed, but my own background educationally is, you know, I, I did a, a computer science, computer applications uh, undergraduate, and then studied artificial intelligence for my PhD. So, so I went through the kind of route that that you talked about. I, I would always see AI as being um, a, a kind of a natural subfield within artificial intelligence but it brings in kind of ancillary areas like you know data science like statistics and so on uh, and so I, I would imagine that these courses are blending a lot of those aspects i certainly don't think you can get away from having to have 
a good understanding of software engineering and computer science as part of an overall AI education. But I'm I'm guessing these courses are looking at what are the other areas that may not be traditionally considered part of a computer science curriculum, like heavy stats, you know, some mathematical methods that might be a good fit for a, an AI specialism. So, so you know, I, I think that's one way of looking at it. And, and I think as well, universities uh, generally are looking at, you know, what are the needs of industry? Where are the, the next generation of careers coming from? And, and where do we need to adjust our, our curriculum to, to focus on some of those things? So I'm, I'm guessing it's a response to that piece as well. Thank you for that, Steve. Um, Sam, do you wanna go ahead to the next question there? Sure, so um, Steve, it seems, you know, maybe it's been a while since you've, you've done research in, in academia, but how would you describe um, or how would you contrast doing research in industry versus doing it in, in, in uh, Trinity or another academic institution? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think what you find uh, with, with a lot of industry-related problems is uh, that in, in many cases, they're not bounded by the, the, the cutting edge research. In other words, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the problems that you come across in, an in, in a commercial setting or an industrial setting can be solved by already established techniques. And so the, the, a lot of the, the kind of approach you have to take is more around you know, understanding requirements, understanding the problem that you're trying to solve, and then figure out which of the techniques that are available to you might be a, a good fit for that. Um, the, the point where you get to like the, the outer edges of, of, of the kind of the state of the art, which is kind of where you tend to operate all the time in, in a university setting, tends to be relatively rare in my experience. And, and sometimes you do get there, but very often it's, you know, it, it's around taking what's well known, what's well established, and then figuring out how you can apply that in, in practice. And, and usually a lot of the problems tend to be more practical than than kind of cutting edge research, if you like. So so that, that's been kind of my experience uh, for a lot of the, the types of work that I've done and, and my team's done. That's great, yeah. And then I guess, is, is funding a big, a big obstacle when it comes to research, um, particularly maybe in a, in, a, in a more academic setting? Do you think funding might be impacted by COVID now? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you would probably need to get somebody from some of the funding agencies if you're, if you're thinking from an academic perspective. But funding is, is always a challenge at, at a certain level. Um, as uh, I'm guessing you're referring back to, part of my career was with, uh, with Science Foundation Ireland. So I certainly have a background in, um, in, in academic and, and third level um, research funding, uh, albeit that's a few years out of date now. Uh, so I, I won't speak to how, how they operate now, but certainly from my experience then, uh, it, it's a challenge in the sense that there is always more. There are always more good ideas than there is money to go around. Almost no matter how much money you have. Um, so you, you know, there's always another project that you have to say no to, not because it's not of good quality or the people aren't very smart, but there just isn't enough money to go around. And so there's always that sort of competitive tension. That, to a certain extent, is is a good thing as well because it forces everybody to to get better and improve the the quality of their work and so on. So it hopefully drives excellence. And that's part of, of what any kind of research funding system needs to do, whether it's academic or, or corporate, is to, is to kind of you know, force projects to compete for finite resources and, and, and drive funding towards the most impactful things. I would imagine now that a lot of the funding agencies, both here in Ireland and globally, are certainly looking at 
you know, how how do we address the the you know the the, the current COVID situation? And how do you direct money to the most impactful things? And, and certainly, the pharma companies, and you know, as we all know, are developing vaccines and therapeutics and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and and equally. In in our field, we, we see people like you know Barry O'Sullivan, uh, Barry Smith, and in, in UCD publishing stuff in in you know the analysis of of what's going on, and um, you know to circle back to to our world, the, the research that's happening on the data science and AI side is feeding into our understanding of what's going on with the with the the, the pandemic, and that's helping hopefully to raise the overall level of of knowledge as to how you know the current situation is being impacted by research both. On the pharma side as well as on the on on the the data science side. That's uh, that's a great answer, Steve. Thank you. Um, maybe we should actually link a few of the work that Barry Smith and the other researchers are working on for our members to have a look at because I've read some of it and it's it's quite interesting. Um, moving to a more recent part of your career uh, in Mastercard, um, I guess this is a very general question, but. Mm -hmm. Again, something that is always um, misunderstood or people aren't sure what exactly it is, is what's the role of data science in fintechs uh, or in a company like MasterCard? Um, like what if I graduate as a data scientist next year, what would I do in MasterCard? Sure, yeah. It, I mean, potentially a lot of things. So um, the, the obvious one that, that uh, everyone probably jumps to initially is, a big part of what we do from a data point, data science point of view, is around, you know, protecting people in various ways. So we have a whole suite of products aimed at security, um, and that could be things like, you know, identifying and reducing and preventing fraud uh, on the card network generally. We have a whole bunch of products focused on identification of the individual through things like biometrics, through uh, things like facial ID, voice ID, and so on. Uh, some of those we've developed in-house, some of them we've, we've acquired, but there's a, a very kind of large suite of products focused on, on security generally, and most of those products have AI, machine learning, data science as, as one of their kind of foundational um, kind of components. <clears throat> so that's kind of one, one obvious piece. Maybe less obvious is other things that we use data science for um, is around things like, you know, we have additional products and services that we offer to to banks, for example, around the whole area of rewards and loyalty programs and that kind of stuff. So we can we can use uh, data to help inform how we can run these loyalty programs better. So to ensure that we give better offers to the right uh, the right consumers, the right cardholders, drive value for the for the, the you know the the merchants, the retailers that they work with. So there's a, a lot of data science involved in in that area. And then kind of maybe more uh, kind of left of field <clears throat> through labs and, and through my team and, and indeed others, um, we're looking at other things that are maybe less obvious. So for example, we did uh, a project uh, last year uh, and into the early part of this year using computer vision as the kind of the core technology set that we were looking at. And you might immediately think, well, you know, what, what would MasterCard be interested in, in computer vision uh, for? But, there's actually potentially lots of, of applications for computer vision in, in our industry. The one that I was involved in was building computer vision models that can recognize products that are sold over the counter. And, and the use case here was in emerging markets where um, not every product has a barcode. Uh, small shopkeepers are often locked out of the digital economy because they can't digitize their, their businesses. And part of that is being able to 
recognize electronically what, what products are being sold. So by being able to train a computer vision model, we could recognize the products by their visual appearance rather than by barcodes, hence capture details about the product. And we were able to then compress all of that into a, into a mobile app uh, that you know the, the shopkeeper could run on a, a you know a consumer grade hand, Android handset you know in the shop. So so there's just a kind of a few examples of of different uses of of data science around the organization, but you know many many more. And and I guess part of uh, you know as you as you think and, and as your as your kind of society thinks about future careers in any company, whether it's Mastercard or or any others. Uh, what you probably find is there's lots of use cases that may not appear obvious from from your perspective as you look on their website or look at their products and services. That data is being used right throughout these organizations for different things and for different purposes and, and use cases. And I, you kind of touched on it a bit there when you mentioned uh, the applications of computer vision. But what are the sorts of technologies that you would traditionally use at Mastercard? Um, uh, from a data science point of view, you, you'll find a lot of things that I'm, I'm sure you guys are, are familiar with. You know, we use a lot of Python type packages, so TensorFlow, Scikit-Learn. You know, uh, all of the the things I'm sure you're you're learning and learning about at the at the moment. Different teams will use R and and other you know other um, both proprietary and, and open source technologies. Um, and then I guess we're we're in the process as an organization of moving. Uh, different parts of our business at, at different stages to to cloud platforms. Uh, that poses a whole bunch of challenges as as we do that. Uh, you know, data, um, you know, data governance being a, a key part of it, and security, etc., related to going to the cloud. But as we do that, that opens up a whole new world of things that we can do in cloud-based technology that is is maybe a little bit more difficult to uh, to implement in in kind of homegrown stuff. But you know, I'm sure all of the things that you guys are learning about, like you know, as I said, TensorFlow, Spark, uh, all of these things are are kind of well and extensively used internally within Mastercard. Thanks, Steve. Um, something that we obviously don't know, but it'll be it'll be nice to discuss is where do you see the impact of technology in the financial industry going in the future? Is something like blockchain under your radar uh, at Mastercard, and like, what's your personal opinion on where we're headed with regards to technology and finance? Uh, yeah, so I mean, on, on blockchain specifically, yeah, it's it's definitely a very keen interest to uh, to Mastercard. Um, I guess in some people's minds, blockchain is conflated with Bitcoin, um, and we have certainly tried to pull those two things apart: blockchain as an enabling technology versus Bitcoin as a, as a, as a currency. But um, you know, our view is, is blockchain is certainly a, a unique and very interesting technology. We're building and you know, we've, we've built our own proprietary blockchain solution. Um, we are building a number of use cases on, on top of that, including things like supply chain and, and the provenance of, of goods, which we think is a, is a really interesting development in, in this space that will be enabled by blockchain. We're also looking at the whole area of national digital currencies so as banks think about issuing you know fiat currency through blockchain uh, technology we're looking at that as well and and are working with a number of national uh, central banks around that area so so definitely blockchain you know is a is a really really hot area within mastercard and one that we're investing very heavily in 
and, and maybe to, to broaden out your, your question around kind of technology in, in fintech generally, you know, we, we've seen a, a huge growth in the whole fintech space over the last, you know, five to, to 10 years. Um, and a lot of that has been driven by the fact that, you know, as consumers now, we all have mobile phones in our pockets. And just as we've seen, you know, online shopping move to mobile shopping, we've seen things like Uber and these kind of, you know, mobility services move to mobile or even be kind of born on mobile. Again, I think we're seeing the same sort of trend in, in the fintech space where consumers, you know, want to have all of the, the, the services available at the touch of a button. They don't want to go, uh, in many cases, into a bank. And so this is kind of, you know, given that traditional banks sometimes uh, struggle to innovate in these areas, it's given fintech players opportunities to, to, to do what startups do, to be nimble, to innovate quickly, to, to go after, uh, the, you know, the consumers and particularly the more tech savvy and, uh, and, and kind of mobile consumers, uh, like I suspect many, many people uh, in your own society. So, you know, it, it's driven the whole space forward hugely uh, and has forced, I guess, the traditional banks now to try and catch up, to innovate, to uh, ensure they don't get left behind as the fintech players come and, and, and try and compete for, for the same customer base that they would always have had. Yeah, that's that's uh, kind of covers my next question, which was just on the sort of you know a lot of the, the kind of publicized um, innovation would often come from the the startup scene. You know, mm -hmm. the, the the really big innovations you hear of would be yeah. Revolut and and all the the other up and coming fintechs. So it's interesting to consider um, kind of teams like your own, which are essentially the sort of uh, existing companies' response to the startup scene and, and, and trying to drive their own innovation, and uh, so I think that's uh, that's really interesting. What would you kind of say would be your kind of your your kind of main few projects that you work on at Mastercard? What, what do you think might be the most revolutionary thing coming up and coming? Yeah, um, I mean, maybe if I could just kind of comment on on your, your first point, uh, I guess you know one of the things that that Mastercard does it works with lots of different customers in lots of different markets with lots of different demographics and so we work with the fintech players indeed we have our own startup program called startpath focus very much on working with these fintechs either you know the ones who are going direct to consumer or the ones who want to sell into the traditional banking partners and equally we're, we're very interested in working with our more traditional partners to help them get the technologies the tools the know-how that they need to, to innovate so so it, it, it certainly, uh, from a MasterCard perspective, we want to make the technology available to everybody and, and raise the bar uh, for the whole industry so that ultimately, and this is really what it's all about, the end consumer gets served better. And whether you bank with a traditional bank that's been around for you know, 100 years or 200 years, or you're banking with Revolut or you know, uh, you know, any of the you know, Starling Bank or any of the, the startups that are out there, that, that you get a, that great experience while you have, you know, a, a kind of a safe and secure environment to, to do it in. So, so we want to make sure that that our technologies and products and and, and processes, etc., can be available for for the whole market. Um, in, in terms of what excites me most about what we're doing, um, you know, it, labs in general. I think uh, you, you touched on one, which is blockchain. You know, there's a ton of of really interesting things uh, going on in that space that that we're involved in. Um, in terms of what my team is involved in, I think um, you, you know we're we're looking at uh, I think <clears throat> trying to in part trying to affect um, 
a change to a lot of existing MasterCard products and services by raising their capabilities by injecting, you know, AI and, and ML type technologies into them. So, you know, on the one hand, some of the projects we do are, are kind of very, very net new, like the, uh, the, the computer vision one I, I mentioned, where that was a, a very much a startup type idea. Um, but in other cases, we're trying to take, you know, AI and, and inject it into products that may already have, you know, a, a market presence and, and hence, you know, increase the value or increase the capabilities of some of those products. So, you know, it, it's hard to pick winners in some cases, you know, or it's hard to pick favorites because in different ways, they're all equally exciting. But really part of what we're involved in is, you know, taking a, a company that has been an innovator and, and trying to continue that journey to push AI into more and more corners, to use AI to, to drive more product development. So ultimately that's the, the thing that, that kind of keeps me, uh, keeps me awake, keeps me interested in the, in the role and the, the team. And uh, I'll just uh, come back to a question I had uh, earlier, which was just, you were nominated on a, on a finalist in the 2019 AI Awards, is that right? Not just nominated, we won that, but yeah. yeah we won that, that was that, uh, that, yeah. that reference, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, brilliant! So that was that was directly related to the computer vision project. You did. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, I think one of the reasons that we won was um, or one of the features of the project, maybe that appealed to the judges, was you know, it, there's some very very interesting and, and and difficult to solve computer vision problems in there. Uh, not the least of which is how do you take a computer vision model, which um, if if you've studied that in your in your coursework so far you'll know that these tend to be fairly heavyweight models. They're trained on kind of clusters of, of GPUs to, to take that model at the end of the, the process and then shrink it down, quantize it essentially, and get it to run on uh, on a mobile phone with sufficient resolution and sufficient performance that it, it can essentially recognize images in, in real time or close to real time. So so there's, you know, there's a ton of technical challenges around that. We also even had to, to kind of solve problems around the data capture which is in, in many kind of data science projects is, is sometimes the hardest work. In the case of, uh, of that particular project, we were, were training our model, you know, there was no off the shelf data set that we used. So we had to have a, a small kind of field force on the ground um, in, in Kenya, in Nairobi, which is where we, we ran the, the initial prototypes. And they were going around kind of shop to shop to shop, buying individual items that we needed to train the model. They would take it back to our lab in Nairobi, we had built a, a kind of a rig to uh, to scan all of the images, so to take kind of 3D um, video imagery of of the the products, and that was used as our as our training set. So so we had lots of kind of technical challenges on the data side, on the training side, but also it's a sort of a in that case it, it fits very well in with the general Mastercard kind of doing doing well by doing good, and you know financial inclusion is a big part of of the corporate ethos within MasterCard and, and how do we build products and services that don't just serve the the, the wealthy of the world, but also the underserved of the world. And, and that project was, was very much in that direction. It was all about how can we build a solution that would work for merchants, for small retailers, in some cases, micro-sized retailers that are often excluded from the digital economy because they don't have the technology which means they can't get digital records of their businesses, which in turn means they they can't get bank accounts and you know get credit histories and all those kinds of things. So so all of this technology layers into being ultimately able to serve our customer, the, the, the shopkeeper in this case, 
and hopefully help them to build their business, get their business on a really sound kind of digital footprint and, and help them then kind of interact with the with the traditional financial world. Thank you, Steve. That's that's actually one of the most exciting projects I've heard about in a very long time, especially as someone who loves to be involved in startups. And I just fear the day that I get so sucked in into my job that mm -hmm. you know this dies out. So I, I'm glad that these kind of initiatives are are there at big corporations such as Mastercard. Um, will we take any questions now? Will we will we wait? Um, Sam, what do you think? Sam, I think you're muted there. Sorry, do you want to take that question there, Ekman? Yeah, so a question here from Fikri is, where do you see conventional bank branches five or 10 years from now? Yeah, I mean, the, the bank branch is is definitely under, under huge pressure. I mean, there's no question about that. And we've seen nearly every bank around the world uh, close down bank branches or rationalize the bank branches. So. Will there will this still be around in five to ten years? I suspect they will still be there, um, but I suspect there will be fewer and fewer of them. Um, but I think more likely what we're going to see is is bank banks changing the types of products and services that they offer through branches. So if you if you've been into a bank branch recently, and and I think the last time I was in a bank branch was you know around about Christmas of last year, so it's probably a year ago. But, but what you see from a, a bank branch now is it's not kind of just rows of tellers, you know, doing kind of very transactional things. It's much more around advisory services. So what banks are trying to do, I think, and, and this is where we'll we'll see the world going, is all of the, the simple to do things will be done through chatbots or online or, you know, mobile apps or whatever. But then as you look for more complex things, if you want advice on, you know, how do you manage your finances, if you want some professional guidance that may be better coming from a, from a, a kind of an expert in the area, they're the kinds of things I think ban banks will try and focus through their, their branches. You know, how do they become high touch, high value places to do business? Uh, and, and then all of the, the more transactional things will move online. So that's kind of where I think it's, it's moving and, and will continue to move in the next five to 10 years. That's brilliant. And we have another question here from Z. Um, I think essentially he's asking, do you think that in general data science has not enough of a foundation in solid mathematics? Do you think there's too much computer science, essentially not enough math? So I think I think that was his question. Hmm. Um, well, I suppose it, it depends on the individual practitioner. Um, you know, uh, I definitely put a lot of stock in in people with mathematical backgrounds and and what i would give advice to anyone who's kind of embarking on a career is to try and get the balance of that right um i think having a strong maths and and, and stats background is very important but if you don't know the computer science if you don't know the software engineering then you're challenged in terms of you know you might be able to build a great model but you may not be able to translate that into something that can be put into production. You know, a, a Jupyter notebook is not a production ready uh, output. And so part of what I always look for in my team and, and in terms of some of the outputs that we build is how do we take that model and then turn it into a software artifact? So I think the the ideal candidate for, for any job in this area will have some balance of both. Um, so, so I do think, you know, maths and stats are, are super important. 
Um, but getting that balance right, I think, is is important as well. Thanks for your answer, Steve. Um, I think we'll go back to our questions now. So I I guess you've touched on this, but you were uh, leading Mastercard's startup engagement activity uh, called Start Path Partners Program, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Um, was, yeah, that was my first job. I, I'm no longer in that team. It was kind of my previous yeah. role, but yeah, I certainly was uh, involved in, in that process for a few years, yeah. So I assume you came across many startups uh, during that time. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about how, how was that and maybe a few of the most exciting startups you came across? Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Um, you know, and, and Sam gave us the question earlier around the whole kind of fintech space. So, so MasterCard got into this area and, and decided to put real effort behind the fintech scene and, and the startup scene um, about five or six years ago, six years ago. Uh, and my initial role within MasterCard was to get that activity started in, in Europe. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it, it is really important for a company like MasterCard to recognize that you know, not all innovation comes from within, um, you know, and, and it can be very tempting for large companies to think, you know, we, we have all the best and the brightest minds, you know, we don't need to, to kind of look outside our own four walls. And I think there was a recognition when the Start Path program was set up that, you know, a lot of innovation is happening in, in the startup scene and we need to be part of that. Uh, and part of it is we need to feed into it. We need to, you know, uh, kind of partner with these companies we, we can also use the reach we have into the banks of the world to help these startups, you know, to, uh, to, to connect with our customers. Uh, and in so doing, we provide value to the startup. We also provide value to our customers because we can help them to identify useful and interesting startup companies. So, you know, it was a very, very positive ecosystem kind of play. Um, and I, I found it, you know, it was a, a hugely, hugely interesting time in, in the industry generally. Um, yeah, as as you guys know, I'm sure the startup scene is is hugely energetic, uh, and so it's always great to work with founders, many of whom have, have come from traditional backgrounds, corporate backgrounds, banking backgrounds, have given it all up, have have you know really uh, gone after the startup dream, and and kind of working with people like that is always super exciting and and really inspirational. So so I I absolutely uh, loved working in, in that area. Um, some of the companies that we worked with, um, you mentioned one already, Revolut actually came through that program and, and was my first introduction to Revolut before I really knew them as a, as a consumer brand. Um, uh, who are the other kind of cool companies that we've worked with? Um, I, I spent a lot of time working with a, a, a startup out of Sweden called Divido, uh, who are in the, the installment payment space. Uh, and there's been a lot of kind of buzz around that area recently. So the whole kind of concept of how do I buy now and, and pay later? And, you know, the credit card is, is one mechanism you can do that, taking out a term loan is another, but there's a whole bunch of fintechs kind of reimagining other ways to do that. And Klarna, you may be uh, aware of, Divido have another solution. So so I, I did a bunch of work in that space and they were a, a fantastic team and a, and a very exciting team. So, you know, I, I could kind of go back through my emails and my, my notes from that period. There, there were definitely tons of interesting companies around the world, a bunch of really cool start, uh, AI focused ones and data science focused ones uh, as well um, that, that, I, that I work with. So um, kind of maybe too many to mention, but there were a couple that come immediately to mind. And you can correct me if 
if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, I think you started your own company nearly twenty years ago. Yeah, right? I've I've had various stabs at the at the startup world uh, my, myself through through various um, various channels, uh, and you know it's it's a real passion of mine that the whole scene. But you know one of the things that I learned from that process is you know it, it's very very difficult. Um, and uh, I guess when I when I was in that, that when I was kind of going through the startup process, um, I, I had two companies I guess that I, I started at various times. One was a, a consulting type business, which um, which which went well, uh, you know, as well as it went. I was there with a number of co-founders, and um, you know, at, at some point we decided to go our, our separate ways, and 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 the business we kind of. I guess folded the business in in a uh, in a in a structured way. I had another startup which was you know more uh, very early stages, kind of a more a tech focused one, and um, and again it, it didn't really work out for me on, on that occasion. But you know I learned a ton from both of those efforts, not the least of which was you know it, it is it is difficult, and it gave me as I said a huge admiration I have for founders uh, that go through that, and and also gave me a realization that. Um, it's you know it, it's a great thing to do when you're early in your career. It becomes much more challenging as you get later because you you know inevitably in life you take on commitments, uh, family, you know all this kind of stuff, and um, and and these things do become a bit more challenging as uh, as you move on in your career. So uh, getting that balance right between having the experience to do it and the the expertise versus kind of career stage is always a challenging one, but. Uh, as I said, I've, I've I've nothing but admiration for people who can who can do it and and who manage to um, to really succeed in the startup space. I totally agree. It's a, it's a very tough balance to find. Um, so I have a question which actually uh, Eva also asked. So do you want to put up that question? Yeah. So basically, what are you looking for? For maybe mm. do you want to give some advice to students or anyone? In who wants to work at um, Master? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, my answer to this will be similar to to what uh, to a, a question that we had a, a few minutes ago, which was, to me, I think getting that balance right between uh, the data science part of a job and the the software engineering part of a job, I think, is is really interesting, and and it's where the sweet spot is for somebody who can really add value to a to a business. Um, so if we think of the kind of the data science piece, we typically think of people who are good at taking data, perhaps data that's already been prepared, uh, applying their, their modeling techniques to it, and coming up with a nicely trained model. Um, but that's only really part of the overall problem that we have to solve when, when we're going at a real world problem. So what, what, what you find in practice is the data engineering piece is it can be a real challenge. Very often we're working with data that was never really designed with a machine learning or AI application in mind. So there's a lot of feature engineering, data cleansing, trial and error, et cetera, and even practical things like in, in the MasterCard sense, you know, a lot of the data we're running on is, you know, the, the, the record sizes are measured in the, in the billions and in the hundreds of gigabytes. Uh, so very, very large data sets. So you have to run those on clusters. And so you're kind of time sharing these big clusters. So there's a lot of considerations around that stuff. And that's all kind of on the input. Then you can do your modeling, and then on the output side, uh, as I mentioned, you know, a, a Jupyter notebook is not really a production grade uh, output. So it's fantastic for for R and D, for trial and error, for doing our our experiments, trials. 
But at the end of the day, that needs then to be packaged in some way so that it can be productionized. And so you need to generally wrap some software around that. You may need to expose your model via APIs. You need to have a, a CI CD pipeline to be able to push that into production. So somebody who, who has the, that broad range of skills that can work from the data right through production and, and do you know, various steps along that way, I think is, is super valuable. And, and they're the kinds of people that I tend to look for when, um, when I'm, I'm kind of building out my team. So we have another question here from uh, from Fakri, I think, who is asking, maybe are the ethics in uh, in data in fintech maybe is data privacy second to innovation? Do you think sometimes, or is that a main priority? Um, certainly, from a Mastercard perspective, you, we have been pretty vocal on that. Um, we, we have published uh, kind of a number of data data principles and data guidelines that we want to be held accountable to. So you can certainly Google that, and uh, if, you know, I can I can find a, a link for you, and, and you can share it with the audience after the fact, maybe. But Mastercard has certainly set its stall out as as you know wanted wanting to be. Uh, very ethical around the, the use of data, and essentially taking the principle that you know, as the cardholder, as the consumer, it's your data. Uh, you should be in control of it, and it should be used for your benefit. Um, and you know, I mentioned how we we kind of work in the the loyalty and reward space as part of our product offerings. And you know, one of the ways you can think about that is that if you're getting a a, a set of offers or or loyalty program rewards that are driven by Mastercard data you should feel that they're of value to you. It's an opt-in type thing. And you should feel that, you know, you know, for for the, the receipt of this email, I'm getting some value uh, for, for that and for the information that's being shared around it. So so that's kind of the the, the MasterCard approach typically. Um, I don't want to comment on the industry generally because you know different companies will have different principles and you know there's a lot of stuff in in the media around how different, particularly the large corporates in the in the tech space use data. Uh, so it's very difficult to generalize, but certainly from Mastercard's perspective, we have tried to take this very principled approach and uh, and 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 been very kind of vocal and public about it. Thank you, Steve. Um, we have a question from Chloe as well, who enjoyed uh, the computer vision project. She is asking, who do you think is the upcoming fintech player fintech players in Ireland and Europe? Okay. Uh, well, firstly, thanks. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It, it, it was a, a great project, and, and we hope to continue to uh, to evolve and, and develop it. Um, the fintech players in in Ireland and Europe. It's it's a difficult question for me to answer, to be honest, because I'm I'm a little bit out of that scene at the moment. It's not um, it's it's not an area that I've focused on. In terms of the you know the 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 consumer brands that that you're familiar with, you know, again, we we've, we've mentioned uh, you know Revolut. Uh, you know, Starling Bank, Monzo, there's a whole bunch of these kind of startup banking players that are all kind of vying for for share of wallet, um, both both here in Ireland and, and in the UK and, and men in Europe. So how how that whole thing will, will shape out, it's excuse me, it's it's difficult to know, but but that's kind of an interesting scene to, to follow. And then there's a bunch of kind of fintech players who are developing supporting technology, but are maybe less well known. Uh, and they're doing things in, you know, uh, we're, we're speaking to people in the whole kind of say encryption area, homomorphic encryption, these kind of areas, you know, privacy supporting um, and, and preserving uh, technology. There's some interesting stuff there. Um, 
I'm trying to think of other ones that I'm familiar with. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 probably one I would need to take away and think about a little bit, um, just because it's it's not uh, an area that I've been as closely linked to as um, uh, as as I might have been a, a few years ago. But definitely a really really exciting area, both in the consumer facing ones and I think in the uh, the tech players that are providing some of the underpinning technology, both to to Mastercard and to uh, the industry more broadly. Thanks, Steve. Um, just a few questions that I always uh, think the answers to are always interesting and worth hearing. Um, what do you enjoy most about your career? So, like, what keeps you going on a Monday morning when we have to actually be the cold and go to the office? What What keeps you going? Yeah, the, the going to the office bit is, uh, is is a luxury now. It's not the, the chore that it was, but uh, I, I think um, you know the, the the opportunity to bring new things into the world. You know, as engineers, regardless of what our you know particular disciplines are, as engineers, we we have that opportunity to, to take an idea and and make something out of it. And that something might be a piece of software that. That does something, but 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 we uh, as a as a discipline as an industry uh, are the ones who can turn ideas into reality, and and that to me in in all of the different jobs I've had as a programmer in, in the early days of my career, even as a research funder now as a as a kind of you know data science leader or, or AI leader w within labs, they, they all have that kind of flavor to it. It's around you know being able to take something that that only exists in our heads and, and build something practical or, and useful and hopefully valuable out of it to me that's the kind of the the interesting part of of our our jobs and you know anything that i've done has had some flavor of of that to it and being able to say that at the end of a project you know i i helped to bring that to life or my team helped to bring that to life and you know sometimes it works and it delivers real commercial value and somebody gets some real benefit sometimes it doesn't and, and that's a kind of a uh, uh, goes with the job as well, but really, that's that's the the motivator to me is, is that kind of you know ideas to invention and being able to create along the way. And I guess um, this is a, a, a funny enough question: if if someone hit the reset button tomorrow and you were back in college and you were looking mm. to start a data science career, what were the th what do you think the things would be that you would focus on? Where might you go to to start that career? Um, I think for me personally, the thing I would probably focus more on than I did at the time, which is again maybe down to the structure of my uh, my own degree. I I, I studied in in DCU um, computer applications there, uh, and certainly at the time, and and it alludes maybe to an earlier question, the the background that we were given in maths and stats was was relatively lightweight and was much more focused on the on the computer science and software engineering aspects. Uh, and I do think in the intervening period that you know maths and stats have become much more important and much more prominent, certainly in in the whole data science area. So, so to me that that would be an area that I would focus on more, uh, you know, back to a, an earlier self. Um, aside from that, though, I'm I'm not sure I would do very much different. You know, I've I've enjoyed all of the different jobs that I've I've done, um, and. You know the, the the thing that you often find with a career is you know the the what you learn in college is is a great starting point, but it's only a starting point uh, to your career. Um, and as your career grows, you get 
experience and things that you you could never learn in college you know how to work with people how to work with teams um you know how to get projects done all that stuff is very difficult to learn in in college uh, and and you kind of you know it's experience more than than kind of academic learning and so you kind of pick that up as 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 you go through your career um and equally the technologies that you learn in in an undergraduate world are going to evolve constantly so the the stuff that you're learning today you know, may well be obsolete in three or four or five years time and you'll have had to retool. So a big part of what you need to do as you start your career and as you go through your education is go in with that mindset that, you know, you're, you're not stuck in a single tech set or a single way of working for an entire career. And, and you need to go in with that kind of mindset that you're going to evolve. You're going to learn constantly on the job once you've left university uh, and, and you, you'll kind of learn from your place of work. You'll learn what's of interest to you, you know, what, where, where you might have less interest and how to kind of hopefully steer your career in areas that are interesting and, and valuable at the same time. Thanks, Steve. Uh, I think there's a related question there in the chat. Uh, Oshin is asking if, based on your experience, looking back now, would you do maybe academia start of some private sector in a different order? Yeah, I mean, it's... it's uh, it, it's difficult to, to answer those kind of questions. I think in in part because you know where where you land in your career at any given time is a function of all of the stuff that's gone before that. So I certainly feel very privileged to be in the job that I'm in, in the organization that I'm in, working with the team that I'm I'm at. So if I did if I did all these things differently, I, I'd end up in a in a very different place, I'm sure. And uh, and so from that perspective, you know, I'm the, the the attitude I always take with these kinds of things is, you know, everything that you do leads up to where you are now. And if you're happy with where you are now, then you know, even the good and the bad things that I've done have all contributed to to your current situation. Um, but but maybe the one tweak I'll put on that is is you know back to a, an earlier discussion we had around the startup scene. You know, for anyone interested in startups um, and thinking of going down that as a route, uh, I think it's great to get some actual practical real world experience first. I think it's very difficult to do a startup straight out of university. Some people do, but it's it's very, very difficult because you, you lack that experience. But then if you leave it too late, you, you'll have taken on all of the obligations of, of life and, uh, and and it becomes very difficult to step away from that. So. So if you are interested in, in the startup scene and the startup world and creating your own thing, uh, the timing of that, I think, is it, it can be very uh, can be very nuanced and, and trying to do it. I would say, you know, if I was to go back and, and do one thing differently, it would be maybe, you know, get into the startup world in my kind of in my mid to late 20s, late 20s, maybe after having enough experience to do it. But before uh, before all of the kind of the heavy commitments of, uh, of life come in. So. So to me, that that's one I, I you know I'm, I might do differently. But like I said, uh, you know I'm I'm very very happy and privileged with my current role. So everything I've done up to the, up to now, the good things, the bad things, the the successes and the failures, all lead up to that. Thanks, Steve. Um, there's a final question for myself. Uh, it's about an interview I read for you. Uh, you're saying that careers and jobs don't progress progress linearly at mm -hmm. all. <laughs> and, uh, and to be honest, uh, looking around me, I think a lot of people, uh, the way they're thinking right now is I get 600 points in the leaving certs, I go to UCD and I get a job and I progress linearly from there. And mm. there's, like I would say, a sense of entitlement to this progression. 
Um, I would say, like, do you have anything in particular maybe you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I touched on it already. And, and it's, it's this idea that, look, careers and, you know, industry is evolving all the time. And the thing that you 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 went to study in um, will even have changed between the time you did your leaving cert and, and the time you graduate. Uh, or if you go in and do a post-grad or a post-doc, you know, the, the, the industry is changing all the time. So the, the, the thing that you always need to do, I think, is to have that mindset that you have to adapt and change as as the the environment changes and equally as your own interests will change you know um there are very few people who want to be in the same job anymore from the time they leave college to the time they retire you know you you go through uh different career cycles you try different things um you you want to work in different companies have different experiences sometimes you want to work abroad so having that mindset that you're you're constantly learning, you're constantly growing. Uh, as I said, various stages of your career may not work out. You may end up in a in a in a in a dead end. You might have to back out of that and, and do something different. And and that's just part of uh, part of life. Um, and I think the other th the other thing I would I would comment on as well is, you know, for, for people who are kind of doing their leaving cert and even in in college thinking about careers. The, the you know when when you do your leaving cert and you apply for engineering or data science or computer science whatever it might be you're doing it without really having any experience as to what the job is like on a day-to-day -day basis and what the career is like and and would you actually enjoy it and it's the same if you want to be a doctor or a teacher or a nurse or anything else you know we only have these impressions of what the jobs are like and sometimes they fulfill our dreams or other times we find actually you know it's not really what i'm interested in and i think the same is true as as you know when you're an undergraduate and you're you're preparing to go into the workforce that uh, your perception of what a, a career or a role is like can sometimes be very different from from what it actually is and some people realize actually work is a lot more interesting and exciting than college ever was and they get really switched on by it uh, other people find the opposite and and need to change careers so again having that mindset of um, you know, being open to and prepared for change and adaptation as you go through your career, I think is 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 what I've tried to uh, to live by, and certainly what I advise anyone starting out in a career. Thank you, Steve. Um, I think we can wrap up. If anyone has any questions, do you want to quickly pop them into the chat there? Sam, uh, are you fine with wrapping up there? Yeah, I think we can wrap up there. I just want to say a big thank you, Steve, for coming on. Really appreciate you giving up your Tuesday evening. Um, it's great having you on. It was really, really interesting. So, yeah, like Ahmed said, if there's any other last-minute questions, just just pop them in there. Um, guys, if you're interested in watching some more of our talks, make sure to sign up to Datasock on datasock.co and follow our YouTube channel for notifications. Um, so, yeah, thanks a lot, Steve. Really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for, for having me. It's been a great chat. really enjoyed it. And, and thanks to everyone for, uh, for tuning in. Hopefully you found it uh, useful. Great. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks a lot, guys.